this week on Smash Bros. When does it start? Three weeks. It's just a workshop. It's Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio. And they just offered it to you, right? It's just a straight offer? Yeah, my agent's working on it. But you know, it pays like 200 a week. I already have to go into full-time daycare. It's Joe DiMaggio, honey. Smash Bros. Hello, and welcome to Smash Bros, the podcast about the NBC musical drama Smash, which aired for two seasons. Uh, starting in 2012. Uh, my name is Jimmy Blackman. And I am Marty Scanlon. Together, we comprise the Smash Bros. We watch Smash and hope to become better bros as Through we watch it. Smash. Uh, I've seen the show. Marty hasn't. Uh, we watch episode by episode. This week, we are talking about episode three, Enter Mr. DiMaggio. Uh, we're changing formats a little for this episode. We're already two up. Ep- We've done two episodes, and we're already breaking the mold a little bit. We're going to do a quick recap up top of the episode, and then we get into a longer interview with uh, Jason Grote, one of the writers for the first season, who we talk more generally about the uh, the process of making it as a whole, a little less on uh, the specific dynamics of Enter Mr. DiMaggio, but we're going we're gonna to cover the bases, as it were. Uh, first base, second base, third base. As Joe DiMaggio run. knows. He knows. If he if he knows one thing, it's those bases. Uh, <laughs> and as we, if we find out, he uh, Michael uh, Swift and uh, Julia know something about uh, third base as well. Maybe, <laughs> maybe even home play. <laughs> um, oh, boy. So what happens in this episode? Right? All right. So I'm going to hit you with this NBC publicity recap, and then I'd like to hit you with a couple of my notes that I took, just little right. observations. Um, so... Episode three, Enter Mr. DiMaggio. Is that what it's called? I just made that up. Yeah, that's right. I said it like four times. Perfect, perfect. Uh, The search begins for a Joe DiMaggio to play opposite Marilyn, but everyone's first choice, Michael, has a secret. All right, before you even get to the next part, let's just translate that to what the episode actually is. Great. Secret is... He and Julia had, had a yeah. They had a little. A so little Julia playing. doesn't want to cast him, even though he's clearly great for the part because he can sing Bruno Mars, and what right, this part requires is being able to sing Bruno Mars. Yes. Um, so the secret. Uh, Karen returns to Iowa for a baby shower and must decide what she wants for her future. Everybody in Iowa thinks she shouldn't be trying to make it in New York, even though she's at age twenty four already gotten like a really huge opportunity. She pours out her emotions by singing "Redneck Woman" at karaoke night, and I think it's essentially meant to to show that like when you go home, you are a star. Sort of like I think that's sort of the other half of it, right? That like that everyone is like her parents are like, well, this is a hard business for you, but then she goes home and she is kind of good, and it's like oh. People at home do see that she has star power, right? And that she would the the small town would always be too small for her. Exactly, she can't be contained by these small town blues. Yes, which is a great song. These little town blues are melting away. Yes, is that little or small? I can't. Little, remember. Oh, little good, town good, blues. Good. I think. Um, great. So she goes to Iowa, and then um, the sort of C plot. Eileen begins rounding up investors, but ex husband Jerry may have already poisoned the well. She throws drinks in his face like like a hundred thousand times. <laughs> uh, he basically Jerry has been going around to everybody uh, and like telling telling them not to invest or right, saying only sort of... invest if I'm involved. He's trying to weasel his way in or just in some way uh, saddle the project. Exactly. So yeah, that's like the general thing. I I, I think I'm just going to read you a couple of these stray observations that I had because we essentially just sort of did our own recap plus the nbc recap so here's a couple of of things that i want to touch on um dev does have a james bond scene where him and the director what's the director's name Derek. derek dev and derek have like a sort of james bond off about um 
where they went to Geography school and, and schooling and just sort of like some like class class and race issues in, yeah sort in of London. strange to touch on it's it's very so yeah that's in the bar when he's basically he's shown up because uh he's found out that karen is like getting drinks with derek and he sort of suspects that derek's been hitting on her or whatever so he wants to show up and like assert his manliness there's I think I've brought this up a little bit before, um, but Derek is already an unlikable character, and he's written to be an unlikable character, and that's fine, but they, like, for some reason, pepper it with, like, him also being kind of bigoted in various scenes, like, uh, which is just, I don't know why they, like, because he ultimately has to be, like, a character that people do kind of, the audience they're not trying to make him a villain on the show. He's just like a curmudgeon, but they've made, they like, he like says weird stuff about him being like, Oh, I bet they, you, they just got off the boat from India. And Dev's like, no, we were third generation or whatever. There's various things with Tom too, where like, he'll like refer to Tom as her or be like, "Uh, I hate the gays. And he'll like say it in like a sort of jokey voice. But it's like, I don't believe that there's like, someone who could actually like work as a Broadway director who would be that openly homophobic. Yeah. I don't know. In, in the, in our modern era, it just is strange. I, and I, and I don't see why, like they never, right. it's, not, it's not like they're, it's not like it's leading a march towards something. No. It just sort of is a straight, it's like they, they rolled on a D a D six and they were like, what weird characteristic right. can he, um, can he and have that like, will make him less like sort of played for laughs, which is so weird. So yeah. tonally, to- so tonally strange. yeah it's it's very strange um okay so we have their james bond scene we have uh the jeweler i, I have kind of like a Marilyn watch like who in the world knows Marilyn? oh sure. uh, the jewelry girl does know Marilyn. right so that's another person in right. the world yeah of what York. does she say something about like Marilyn? Marilyn wore a pair just like these in, when eileen's buying some knockoff yeah she's not that's not even a jewelry store it's a pawn shop it is isn't that's it? right it's a pawn shop so it's not this it's a nice not, pawn shop though. yeah well everything's nicer on broadway that's yeah. true <laughs> um, um i have i also have restaurant watch which is why is her husband in every restaurant followed by if her husband is at this restaurant i'm canceling the podcast uh did followed he by up? he did okay followed by he throws a drink or i'm sorry she throws the drink followed by do not throw another drink followed by i said don't and then he threw the drink <laughs> or she threw the drink yeah um yeah they have this whole i don't i don't even know like I would be interested to hear with these characters, like, if uh, Teresa Rebeck and the writer's room had any, um, like, specific producers that they were modeled. Because some of the people are, like, seem to be modeled after, like, types in Broadway history. And I don't know if this guy's supposed to be, like, a Mark Platt or somebody specific. Yeah. But it, it feels like it's not. It feels like it's just this, like, sort of, like, very crayon drawing of a broadway producer in this way that it's all broad strokes yeah. i don't know may it just seems like they could have given them like like it more specific personalities more personality to them instead they're just yeah they're these very like he's a tar- he's essentially a target to get wet like he's right. the dunk tank of broadway producers <laughs> okay so then we have um what else what are the major things we have of course the the bruno mars show at la mama right which we talk about a little in our interview with yeah. with jason um i have here every man is a lecher and a pig well they so they do come there's a little bit of a We've we we talked in both of our previous two episodes a little bit about like the Derek character and like how this is like a 
sort of pre-Me Too show in yes. some ways. I feel like there's a little bit of comeuppance for him, or at least a little bit of people reference on the show that maybe it's not great that he's sleeping with actresses he's right. casting. That, like, kind of comes up on the show. And Ivy, Ivy has this whole, like, um, battle, inward battle of, like, did he just cast me because I slept with him? Should I have not slept with him? Uh, why isn't he inviting me over to the house? But it's all in this sort of like teenage, like, oh, why didn't, why is he not paying attention to me now? Way when it is still not really being treated as, as like an, an ethical problem. violation <laughs> has happened here. Right. What else? I wrote down Roger Sterling conversation. That's probably because I knew we were going to talk to Jason. And oh, sure. there was a conversation that literally felt like sort of a, 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 amateur is the wrong word because it was not amateur, but it was, it was like a, pointing at what the character of roger sterling and Mad Men would become there was like a conversation that happened i can't remember what it was okay <laughs> uh, so that's a useless piece of trivia um his the the father we we get the her going back home to iowa oh talking sure to her parents she goes and does her redneck woman thing and right. then it turns out it's dylan crazy baker that dylan baker was there the back of, and she knows because the next morning he smells like cigarettes yeah and so uh, he was so it just brings up a lot of strange questions of like was her father watching like a coyote ugly sort of situation or what what was kind of happening yeah i mean i guess i guess uh generous reading of that i guess what we're supposed to get is like you know, her, her parents are saying, like, we wish you wouldn't go chase this thing in New York. But at the end of the day, he knows that's what she wants. Yeah. And he really believes she's talented and, like, loves it. You know, he's a good father. Right, so he's going to support, he's gonna support in, in whatever way he, he can. And Right. But it is, it it does bring up questions of, like, they weren't, I don't think, planning on doing karaoke that night. Right. So, so what he was... just was, like, maybe at the bar for hours just watching what his daughter was yeah. doing. Yeah. Uh, this newly shaved face, uh, Dylan Baker, <laughs> right, who, right. They, who they plant a flag in that just to, because everyone was worried about the fact that he shaved between the pilot and the, the, the yeah. guest starring role two episodes in. And also I, very early to like bring back her parents. Like her parents should like, like that's like a, that's like an episode nine. Yeah. Plot. You know, like remember these people from the pilot, like maybe Here's it's how like, she's changed. They're about to like. You know, they have a week off between the out-of-town tryouts and, yes. like, starting up the Broadway rehearsals, and she goes home, and yeah, and exactly, it's a, like, back then she was, like, a sort of neophyte who was, like, new to the world, and now she comes back and is, like, wearing all black yes. and has sunglasses on, and people are like, you oh, I love that. But it's like, no, it's been, it's been a, a week second. and a half. Yeah. Like, you saw your parents, like... Two episodes of The Voice have aired since that. Like <laughs> they, they gave you forty dollars cash, and you still have ten dollars cash. Have it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? I have a note here from our previous guest, Allie, because Allie and I have been watching them together. That sure. just says because they do have the sun in the episode again for a second. Sure. Um, and Allie said they put a they put a monkey's brain into a human boy because he does have another banana in this episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, it's we got exciting stuff with Leo coming up. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that's it. And then, of course, they they kind of end recording the the uh, titular sort of song of Mr. DiMaggio and Marilyn. Oh yeah, sure, Mr. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. That's Which right. you know what? I, I I'll say this. I I like I, the the song. We talk about this again, not to front load too much stuff of what we talk about with Jason, but he talks a lot about um, sort of the difficulty of writing songs that work for the episode, but then like also the, work in the musical musical as a whole, and like. But I will say, I like I do like most of the songs I do in too. the show so far. Yeah, I do too. 
Um, yeah, and like this, I, again, it's like, I don't see how all these songs add up to a coherent musical. But they still are like perfectly entertaining and interesting. And, and they feel like what these songs would be. 100%. Like, and totally that's agree. the most important thing. Like, for so many things that feel like slightly off in the world of this, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I believe that like in 2012, a uh, Maryland musical would kind of look like this. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, um, so that's a nice ending. Yeah. And basically, uh... In this episode, we've sort of, I feel like this is three episodes in is like we've set up the, like kind of all the major player. I feel like with the introduction of the Will Chase character, Michael Swift, yeah, that's like the last of the major characters who right. are, I mean, I'm probably forgetting like. Right, but these are some, sort of the, the game changer character. Right, we like put out all the pawns and it's like, now it's like. It's time to play the game. Let's play the game. And uh, we'll see next week uh, what game they play. I can't wait. <laughs> uh, but so. Uh, Let's get into our, our interview with the uh, the amazing uh, and very generous with his time, Jason Grote, who uh, we're going to talk with for about an hour. Here we go. We have a very exciting guest on the show today. So exciting that I've written an intro for him in the Notes app on my phone. I love it. That I'm pulling up. As we speak, I probably should have pulled it up before we started recording. You know? I think that's what a professional podcaster does, <laughs> is pull up his notes app before he begins. He's an esteemed playwright and TV writer. His plays include Hamilton Township, This Storm is What We Call Progress, and most recently, the musical 1,000 Nights in One Day that's at the Prospect Theater Company. On television, he's written for shows including Mad Men, Hannibal, and Nightfall. But most germane to our interest today, he's a staff writer. He was a staff writer on the first season of Smash. Please welcome to the podcast, Jason Grote. Hi, guys. Hello, everybody. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Uh, our first our first truly Smash-related uh, guest. Uh, he was there at the beginning. Well, not at the very beginning. He was there... Uh, Post pilot, I assume you were you were hired uh, as as Teresa Rebeck was staffing up. Yeah, yeah, I was I was fairly I was like an early hire. Okay, but I think the pilot had already been done, and sure. I I was friends with Teresa. It was just actually this crazy the story that you know may not be of interest to Smash fans, but for me it was a very dramatic point in my life. I, sure, I was uh, I had been working as this kind of obscure experimental downtown playwright, and right. I was being done regionally. I was sort of emerging, and uh, I was making my living as a as an academic at Rutgers. And okay. this was uh, it was actually you know this moment in history, like uh, when Chris Christie became governor of Rutgers, in a really particularly vindictive moment, he slashed their budget because the Rutgers president Chris uh, Chris Christie being vindictive. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. this was like was one of the first like uh, indications of that. Sure. And uh, he slashed the Rutgers budget because the president of Rutgers endorsed his opponent. Okay. And I was collateral damage in that. So, uh, and I had uh, my oldest son was about to be born. I just lost my health care. It's this really crazy, tumultuous situation. And so I uh, had, you know, everyone I knew, all my, my, my friends knew my predicament. And at, at this moment, uh, Teresa had reached out to me and said, you know, I had this, this pilot in development at Showtime. It was, you know, as as I've since learned that these things just kind of go on forever. And sure, you, you right. had to manage your expectations. Right. And uh, even she was surprised, like, this was going to be on NBC and it was going to be big. And she was like, you know, would, would you like a job? I said, yes, of course, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, but, it, I, you know, it was like th- these moments of, like, it, it's not real until it's real. Right. And I had actually, just as a hedge, taken a job in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, at a, a 
lovely program at a great school, University of New Mexico. But you know, we're I, living I, in New York City. Yeah, and New Mexico yeah. is is not New York City. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty remote place for people that want to make a living in the arts. Right. And so. Uh, I, you know, basically I can live in like New York, Chicago, or LA, maybe a handful right. of other cities, but right. there's not a lot of other places I can do what I do. And uh, I, I had accepted the job because I was just waiting to hear. And then at the, at the 11th hour, it came through. And it was, and I remember my wife and I would watch the little YouTube clip they previewed from the pilot of Catherine sure. McPhee singing "Beautiful," and we would just like, like you know, hold our baby and cry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, so we were sweet. so happy to, yeah. Oh my god! And and it was a great, you know, we would go over uh, to uh, Teresa's home, you yeah, know, and and uh, work in her little office before we had like the, everything was in place, and then um, and so it, it was it, in that beginning part. It had a really kind of nice, intimate feel. It was yeah, a small skeleton crew that later expanded. Was was it a lot of playwrights on staff? I mean, I know yeah. New York uh, mm-hmm. writing staffs often have one or two token playwrights yeah. on the staff, uh-huh. but I imagine with a show like this, it was a little heavier on that side. Yeah, the majority of the people on the show had written plays. There was uh, on that season. There's Jerome Hairston, who's a magnificent playwright and TV writer, and Jackie Reingold, who was a real mentor to me, and uh, Rollin Jones, another great playwright, and David Marshall Grant was one of the executive producers. Okay, he had been in television and been a showrunner for quite a while, but he but his background, his, yeah, he uh, he had had to play at a Manhattan Theater Club. So there, there was a very uh, I, I need to go through my mental Rolodex. I don't want to insult anyone, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was a very playwright heavy group. Yeah, um, and. Uh, yeah, and a very it, – it's funny that, that it was very much – it was a great first gig for a playwright, too, because putting that show together had a lot to do with theater. I mean, obviously, it was this massive undertaking, and I also became incredibly spoiled. I think now that I've been a TV writer for a few years, I'm like, oh, you know, you, know, you don't get, like, you know, lobster tails and filet mignon <laughs> yes, every day. From Steven Spielberg's not yeah. bankrolling every every project. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, is it like this all the time? And on my first day, I opened the fridge, and there's all this yogurt, and I'm like, can we eat this? And the <laughs> other writers are laughing at me, yeah, you know, but since that I've worked in jobs where you're like, you know, working in a double wide trailer and like literally like eating the props from another show, <laughs> right? Sure, because they don't have a good catering budget. So it's yeah, I mean, you like just that. have to. I, I work in TV, and and you just have to learn to be confident to walk up to the catering of another show and look like you belong. Yeah, get their catering. Like <laughs> yeah, if yeah. if you're in the office and you're not shooting that day, you just you get you go to the breakfast truck for yeah. the Deuce, which is shooting in the same building yeah. as my show. <laughs> um, but uh, so so as the as the you know shows starting to to get rolling, you um, the the crew gets or the the writers' room gets bigger. You start to uh, plot out the course of the season. I'm curious um, what that was like. My my first thought was just what it's like to uh, both be. Uh, breaking story for the show, and then also having to be secondarily thinking about, oh, we are sort of writing a musical at the same time, or uh, you know, because a lot of times these songs, uh, as they exist on the show, in the way that they sort of have to on this kind of show, have to reflect what's happening to that character in the episode. But at the same time, there is this ultimate goal to have it feel like a cohesive musical is being written. Was that a conversation that was that was happening in the room? Yeah, I think that that was a little bit difficult because there was the the, the musical bombshell and right. then there was the musical smash. Right, and sometimes those two things were in conflict, and it was a little bit. I think that uh, you know, doing a musical as a television show is is really kind of a unique challenge. I mean, I think that if I were uh, 
if, if I were able to do my own version of it and I could do sure. anything I wanted and pitch I, it to us, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the exact question that I want to <laughs> ask here. So this is great. That uh, I, I would probably start it with the composer in mind, which may be an impossible undertaking because these things are packaged by agents. And sure, so, you know, and you, you know, it's all about names and people's credits and things like that. But right. I think that. Uh, you know, and I, I genuinely don't know how uh, Teresa and Mark and Scott were all paired together. But, right. You know, they all have these powerhouse resumes. Right. And, but but I think that I would conceive it initially with the composer. Um, and also that the, the the musical that I have going up right now is the first musical I've worked on. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to talk about Yeah, that, yeah, well, you can, we can do that at the end. Well, but, no, uh, but I'm actually curious. I mean, like that you, you were involved in this show about making a musical yeah. and now you're making a musical. Yeah. Uh, where where that matches up, where you're like, oh, that's what that's yeah. how a book is written in conjunction with a score. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were I had started work on this music. I've been working on it forever, so I had been doing it for about a year before Smash. Yeah. So I had enough to kind of bluff my way through it. Sure. To, to tell you know all the producers, oh, I've worked on musicals, you know. It's, <laughs> sure. uh, but uh, now that I actually have one up and you see yeah. it in production, I'm like, oh yeah, this is kind of like that problem, right? And, and I knew enough to. I mean, there was. Uh, and I believe it was in the workshop episode where I started talking about, oh, the bump into the song, which is just musical theater speak for the dialogue that comes right sure. before they start singing. Sure. And I knew enough to present that as a possible problem. But now that I'm actually in it, I'm like, oh, that's actually a major problem <laughs> yeah. all the time. And you never, and you're always playing catch up. I mean, right. I think that, you know, if, if maybe if you're, um, you know, John Weidman or somebody like that that writes books all the time. You you know it by instinct, but right. it, it's always you never quite know you're and, until you're actually seeing it in production with an audience. We're like, oh, it feels really, really weird, right, for them to start singing right now, and it's so difficult because it's also uh, you know you don't want to have them talking for so long that they're eating up the emotions that are going to go into the singing. Right. Sure. I have uh, a, I have a friend who uh, I've had. Sort of, I I love musicals. I I grew up uh, like doing them and. Uh, I have a friend who I have a sort of a long running argument about uh, that. He he doesn't like musical theater and he likes a lot of elements about it, but that's his sticking point is just that moment, the ramp up into a song where yeah. they start singing. He's just like, it never, it never works for me. I never, I'm like, why are you, uh, why are you saying like, they've just, they don't, they don't stick the the takeoff in, yeah. a, in a certain way, which is interesting to me. It's really tough. And it's, I mean, even last night, we're still in previews for this musical, and I added one single line before a song, and it, it changed the entire, like, third of the last third of the show. It's yeah. adding one line. Uh, and it's such a weird, delicate thing. Uh, so other other problems like that, I think that, that it's... Uh, and also, uh, and this also was a part of the show, uh, but really learning how everything has this a, a crazy domino effect that you change one thing. And this is also the, the minutiae of theater can also be kind of boring and not really worthy of, of TV. Sure. But uh, one thing that I've learned with the musical is that you, you change one line and all of a sudden, not only does that one line have to be retacked, but it's like the, uh, the, the the choreography and the singing and the music direction, it affects so many departments. Sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, a, a musical more so than a play is such a tightly wound. Yeah. There's every cog connects to a different cog yeah. in a certain way. I think you could you could change a line of dialogue in the play and it's just like, well, I was just in a section of dialogue. So yeah. what, what, what difference does it make? And television is somewhat similar, but in television you have the, the, the advantages of, uh, first of all, a lot of money, but... Second of all, the editing bay. Right. You can always go back and, and fix things later right. and reshoot and things like that. Whereas well, with a musical, everything is kind of you're on a shoestring and it's working in real time. And, and so I, I think that, that that's th those are all things that uh, I, I think it's not so much that I wish I knew them then because they all came to play in the show. 
But yeah, it was really tricky. I, I know you guys are talking about the DiMaggio episode. This is my right. Anecdote. We should we should say that just real yeah. quick because I didn't oh, load that. Yeah. No, no, it's all right. It was my fault. Uh, we we are talking about uh, episode three, Enter Joe DiMaggio, uh, uh, in which uh, the the character played by Will Chase is is cast as uh, as Joe DiMaggio, or the the offer is extended to him, and by the end of the episode, he's cast as the character. So Jimmy watched Smash when it aired and i had never watched smash before so i am watching i'm trying as best i can to avoid reading things about it and i'm watching in real time so i'm only on episode three right now so i'm i'm happy to know things or be spoiled about things it doesn't really matter but that's sort of where i'm coming at we're trying to do the shared perspective of one of us kind of knows what's happening and one of us doesn't um which is why i'm sort of quiet um but yeah that's that's kind of where we're at okay Um, that's good to know but yeah, so what's your what, what was your uh, DiMaggio anecdote? Well, when, when we got, it was right around this part where we introduced that character and we were working on all the musical numbers that we began to realize that we were accidentally creating an impossible musical in Bombshell, not in Smash. Because uh, right. for the show, it's like, you know, uh, there there's a, a thing that I, I've heard um, one of my, my favorite uh, showrunners and mentors, a, a playwright, TV writer named Carl Gadgeset, calls it the nickel test. It's like... When you uh, what what do you pay you know when you when you go in and pay your nickel what are you paying for? Mm-hmm. And in the case of Smash, that was it was basically to see Megan Hilty and Catherine McPhee sing right, right. and have this all about Eve style rivalry. And so, in the musical of Smash, it was we were actually looking at different characters singing their own musical numbers and sometimes alternating. But we started to realize as we got into the show, it may have been after three. Because it was a little, it's a little early to realize this, but that we're creating a musical where the only character that sang was Marilyn Monroe, right? And it, and you didn't really feel it because it was these two different actors. Because you need a, at least one new Marilyn song every week yeah, to have yeah. these these powerhouse performers, yeah. sing. And yeah. in the writers' room, we began to think like, wait a minute, this would like it would if in real life in Broadway, it would kill a performer's voice to right. like, do this much singing <laughs> right. one night. Um, and so we realized that we had to introduce uh, another character that would sing. Yeah. Um, and that that was a little bit tricky, too, because it's sort of like, I mean, people that are tuning into the show. I mean, he was a great performer and great singer, the, the actor that we had for that. But it wasn't uh, nothing against him. But that's what people wanted to see. Yeah. It was these two. Um, yeah. So, so that was what we were just imagining this musical with only one character scene. Everyone right. else just kind of standing around. Was there any conversation in the writer's room about the possibility that Megan Hilty was too good for this show to be believable that she would ever not get the part? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we've <laughs> that's been talking biggest... about while watching it. It's like from the minute she starts performing, you're just like, like oh, oh, she's, she's a star. Maryland. She's, she's yeah, amazing. Like, yeah. I mean, no shade on Catherine McPhee, but like Megan Hilty's a Broadway veteran who looks like Marilyn Monroe and can really deliver. Um, or is there ever a conversation about like, oh, maybe we should, we were talking in the last yeah, episode yeah. about like, uh, maybe she should be a terrible dancer or something, but you can't really do that. <laughs> I guess like, it has to, to be, you have to have these great numbers. Yeah. Well, that, that was, there was something that was really interesting that began to happen that, and, you know, we weren't uh, uh, too, attuned to online chatter um, or if, if people were I mean I, I actually I, that's not true I should, I should say I, I was but <laughs> we tried not to bring that stuff into the writers room had the, uh, I mean what was the production schedule like for this where are you still right well you, you wouldn't still be writing when it started airing were you? yeah we were oh yeah. wow okay it, it was, so it was uh, a pretty quick turnaround yeah I believe it started airing around episode 7 or 8 okay um, wow so it was uh, I, I could be wrong about that but it was something very interesting started to happen, which is that uh, the the musical theater people uh, in New York and elsewhere 
were kind of Team Ivy. You know, they they were really sure. all about Megan Hilty, and and uh, the Middle America was was very much Team Karen. That's so funny. Yeah, well, she's and then, a she's a redneck woman, as yeah. she's saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, she connects with those Iowa roots. Yeah, that's and I think that that part of it was it was uh, it was the American Idol thing. Right. I think that it was, and also a lot of it was the storytelling because right. it, it was uh, for various reasons, and a lot of it was just that uh, that Megan was really game that like she didn't uh, really mind playing a villain right and that's always uh you know it's always a little bit tricky it's it's you know because you're uh you know people will get really crazy about television and really associate i mean you see it happened with um uh, oh god from breaking bad the uh oh the, yeah skyler uh, yeah it's uh, uh, yeah and a gun and a gun, and a gun. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah horrible uh, you saw that happen with her where right. people started associating her with the character and just having this the kind of insane right. and well and, it's way and worse a thing like that where it's like she's giving a great performance but they've just the as great of a show as breaking bad is they sometimes throw her under the bus as a plot device yeah. of just like well we need to have this happen so let's have her be feel like this nagging wife or whatever yeah. and people just people can't separate the performer from the like story elements of it yeah and that, that and there's also something in the classical dramaturgy of if you're really invested in watching the protagonist get what they want even if what they want is terrible yeah the, the person getting in the way you're, you're right. going to resent you, them right um and i think it's and this de- yeah. show moves through story very quickly i mean that was that was something uh, that I think we both really liked about like yeah. even in the pilot like you you sort of it sets up this you know who who's going to play this part who's going to get cast in this role thing and you think oh this will maybe be the first half of the season this vying for it and by the yeah. end of episode two it's like okay she's got the part yeah, yeah nothing like ever what kills. happens now so you have to sort of it's it churns through story in a in a fun way yeah that was our motto is burn story yeah just don't I, don't I wait that. for anything it was yeah. really and I I think that that's uh, which is uh, you know it's. It's great, and it's also really tough. It's really difficult to keep finding, you know, new twists and turns. And Teresa had the season uh, not exclusively broken. She had the the the, the big um, kind of signposts, right? You know, that that she knew where we were going, and in, in general, that you know, is basically like the first two or the plot of the first two or three, some big turns in the middle of the season, and where we're going to end up, yeah. and then everything else we're kind of filling in and coming up with B and C stories for our ancillary characters and. Uh, and it was also tough. I feel like, you know, network shows are also tough right. like that, that. That one of the mandates that we had was to use all of our series regulars. And, you know, uh, kind of eight and a half series regulars. Uh, Brian sure. Darcy James was well, we our got, kind we of half series regular. We have regular. to talk about Brian Darcy James because – we need to know <laughs> every time. Every time I watch the show, I go, "Okay, so is Brian Darcy James going to sing? When is he going <laughs> to?" Yeah, sing? When, yeah. I mean, was there any conversation in the writers' Absolutely. room? Absolutely, we find a way for a chemistry teacher to sing a beautiful, heartbreaking song because he's <laughs> Brian Darcy James. Absolutely, yeah. I think that we really uh, wanted to. Uh, yeah, I think we're all kind of dying to have something like that to really utilize right. his talents and. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a good actor too. Yeah. I mean, he he's fine as. I mean, not fine. He's more than fine as a as a straight actor. I mean, he he does that part well and i'm sure people watch the show having no idea that he's this you know amazing amazing singer but it's uh it's funny and Uh, he was kind of in a way like uh you know uh, the anna gun in in a sense of the show like not he wasn't treated as vitriolic but i think because he's the character that's getting in the way right uh, of you know of this of this kind of crazy love affair and of, of getting in the way of his wife's career like he is a blocking character right that's a it's it's a it's a tough yeah, uh, role and uh, you know, but but it's uh yeah, he was fabulous. He was a really fantastic guy, and and there is a lot of that. Uh, yeah, of wanting to use, um, but it it is tricky that uh, one of the things about network is that you've got to. 
uh, use your series right. regulars in every episode. And, and and then, you know, when I, I moved to a cable show after that, I was like, oh, this is it's so fantastic. Uh, and, you know, Mad Men is also especially unique because sure. it's, uh, you know, it, it's uh, Matt Weiner does Experiment with form. And yeah. I mean, particularly, I mean, I, I, I think we both want <laughs> we, to talk we, a little we, bit about your episode, Mad Men, yeah. because we yeah. love that we episode. Both, yeah. I mean, that you, I, I mean, I, I don't know how much on that show it was uh, room written and how much mm-hmm. you how much how much of a hand you had in in the crash but like that episode is uh one of my favorite episodes so good (laughs) and so uh form breaking and and experiment i mean like that i think if i were to look at uh downtown playwright joins a tv show (laughs) i would smash would be a less i would be more surprised about that than like oh he wrote this episode of mad men where Where uh, they descended to hell and ken crossgrove tap dances yeah Yeah, that was very much it was a very strange i mean uh, well that that show in particular there is this the you know the the writers room is 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 a single organism with uh, Matt as the the brain. Yeah, you know I think that that was you know I mean it, it's undeniably the entire show is his vision and the characters are irrevocably his. Right. But but everyone else the you know it, it's I, I look at that episode now and I, I do see so much of myself in it. Yeah, and at the time it very felt very much like a dream. Right, you know it was sort of like did I do that? You know, it's like <laughs> but it, well, it's a very intense yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was what with uh, you know with with, uh, with Ken with Aaron Staten. He's a, he's a, a music theater performance. He actually. Uh, a little uh, trivia fact: He went to Carnegie Mellon with Megan Hilty. Uh, oh, really? So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. He, so he has a musical theater background. And he was always, for for some reason, he was always one of my favorite characters on yeah. Mad Men. Yeah. I just I just liked him, and as the seasons progressed, he sort of got, you know, less and less to do in certain as that yeah. show does, where it'll take have in 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 a, in a great way where there'll be like a great character and they'll just be gone or or just be yeah. gone for a while but like then when he life. when he got that moment in that episode i was like it's fine if i never see him again on the show he got yeah, he, got he got to his, do that yeah he got a spotlight but there's yeah we had actually we had explicitly discussed uh, you know how do we get how do we use some of his, his music theater oh, talent that's so awesome and, and I mean, he actually came into the writer's room and like showed us his little you know i forget there's a name for it it's not paradiddle but it's like paradiddle it's okay. like right. that the equivalent of that of, of the of the tap dance movement, he showed us, and we're like, we have to use that somehow. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's well, and I loved also. I it was uh, later that season, right in that in that season finale where uh, where Burt Cooper also gets to yeah, where oh, Robert Morris is the next season. Oh, is that yeah, the next yeah. season? I was just so happy for that for yeah. that as well because it was like this guy gets to uh, you know he's been you know had this, this great run on this show, but yeah. he's like as this young man, he was this you know. Jerry Lewis esque wild musical comedy yeah. guy, and he gets to like have that send off. Was so was yeah, the- yeah. There was always like we never. It was a little bit too arch, but we had always had a, like a joke about having like, Burt Cooper watch How to Succeed in Business. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just like create a time yeah. loop that's so or something. Funny. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I think that that's and, and that is also that's one of the luxuries of television, and this is a, a way that it actually does line up with musical theater. That, that uh, when you you have to write to the performers, I mean, plays are a little bit they. Uh, I, I do think good playwrights know how to write to performers, but I think that it's it's a little bit trickier because you know uh, plays are are perceived as literature and they are literature, uh, but they also uh, end up going getting distributed out to like regional theaters or colleges or wherever, sure. and the playwright can't always be in the room. Um, I, I think that that's why the initial productions are always the really important ones right. because you're building these roles and you're creating them and then and creating a template. But uh, and I think television is like that, but it's it's a little bit better because at the end of it you're left with a TV episode, so it's con- you're constantly 
doing feedback between all the different creative departments and the cast and the actors and the writers. And, yeah. and so that was uh, an experience. Like rather than trying to uh, shoehorn uh, the actor into a, a, a role that you've conceived, you're sort of reconceiving the role to suit the actor's strength. Or yeah. You're discovering something about the actor. Well, that's I mean. that's something that I love about, about TV is that uh, not only like in that initial process of as you're producing the episode, you get to work with them, but as a show goes on episode by episode and season by season, people get to look back at what they've written and how, how the actors change the role and the roles. It starts to just fuse and, and change over time where uh, uh, anything that's uh, where a movie even mm-hmm. is just like it is that movie and it's that one performance. But there's something fluid and always changing about tv performances yeah it's great and you can yeah and i think that it was a little bit it was tough with that compressed uh kind of network because smash was also i do think it existed somewhat uncomfortably between its cable roots and it's it's yeah i wanted to ask about that i I kind of had a question when when you got involved was it still set up at showtime or Uh, no bob greenblatt had had become president of nbc and he brought smash with him so it was a network do you know like um what how her vision changed or how Greenblatt's vision, I mean, I know he was involved in the development as well, uh, changed from Showtime. Like, can, could you imagine what the show would have looked like on Showtime, how it would have been different? Uh, I never read or saw any versions of it, but I've, I've spoken to Teresa about it, and, and she she characterized it as, like, just darker and more profane, basically. Yeah. More cable <laughs> in that sense. Right. Uh, and, and I think that... So I, I'm not really sure how it it veered from her initial vision. But I know that she was aiming at creating a real, like a popular soapy TV show. I mean, she was, um, you know, it was, she wasn't, Shonda Rhimes is maybe not the right term, but in that sort of sense of like popcorn TV, you know, of just like like crazy plot twists and soap operatic. And, and you're just really, you know, that, that, and that kind of, I think that that was, uh, Really, like I think, deliberately, like right. what she that wanted. wasn't something that was pushed on her by by the network. No, I don't yeah. think so. I mean, I again, I wasn't in the room for a ton of those discussions. I mean, I was on the notes calls for my own episodes, sure. but I think that it, it was, um, yeah, I, I do think that that she was aiming for like a popular, entertaining TV show. Right. I think that she wasn't sort of trying to foist like prestige TV on NBC. Right? Do you think um, the the element of like the of pop songs being incorporated? That that to me, like in this episode particular uh, that we're talking about, uh, there's redneck woman that she sings at the karaoke bar in Iowa, and then uh, they say that uh, Will Chase's character is doing that Bruno Mars show at La Mama. At La Mama. Yeah, <laughs> where it, it feels a little bit to me like when when you hear about people who direct like big budget movies, like action, you know, Avengers type movies, where it's like, yeah, they've Previsd these big fight sequences, and you have to build it around that. Was there a little bit of a sense of like, yeah, do your musical theater thing, but we need something that we can sell to the American Idol audience as well? There was a little bit of that, which I think that that had it's bigger consequences than I think anyone had intended. I sure. think that, and there was, I mean, in my uh, the the first of my two episodes, and we did the the workshop episode, we had. Uh, Catherine McPhee recording a song in a studio, and it was a little bit. Uh, it was almost like, uh, and and I I, I am proud that I kind of came up with a clever solution to make the song sure. uh, uh, modular that you could take out the song that 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 I had pitched, which I knew I forget what song it was, but I, I knew when I said it that it was going to be, you know, it's probably something like 
like Wanda Jackson or something. You know, it's uh-huh. probably something a little bit more on the obscure side sure. or a little bit more of, you know, a sort of forgotten classic. And I, and I knew going in that that was not going to be okay. The, the idea from the beginning was always going to be one pop song, one original uh, from Bombshell, and one standard musical theater song. Okay. Uh, but I think that what had happened was that, um, I mean, right from the beginning, the, the music department had this kind of synergistic idea that, that they were not necessarily, you know, I'm I mean, going to other shows that have a more traditional relationship with music. It's more, you know, well, especially something like Mad Men music right. was such an important part of that show, right. but it's very much Matt's vision. And it's very much like I'm going to do, you know, I really want to see what it looks like when, you know, Don hears Purple Haze for the first time. or <laughs> yeah. And then you get the licensing department to, you know, to, to excuse me, wheedle or pay or, you know, right. the, 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 for that song. Um, but in this case, it was always kind of conceived. Uh, uh, part of the business model was like, oh, great, we're going to, uh, you know, it, it's going to sell all these pop songs and we'll sell the recorded version. This, like with, right. you know, so Catherine you McPhee, a very beautiful singer. Powerful music department in that way. Where yeah. They're, they're building an album essentially at the same time as. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're approaching it like A&R guys. Right. So, and, and, and I, you know, I went in there and, it was uh, like I said. I, I was proud of my clever solution that I could write around something and get the script done, and they could just put in whatever song they wanted. But the effect of that is that it's a little bit. Um, it, it was. It didn't quite pack the emotional punch as like I, I think that in the pilot, beautiful was. It was kind of the perfect number for that. It was really synced up very well. Sure. Uh, but Maybe I, not a song you would actually use for auditioning for this sure. musical. Yeah, yeah, but, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, you can you can stretch your imagination. Yeah, and then becomes tricky too because you don't want to. You know, you keep going. How many times can you have? Uh, you know, Catherine McPhee sing. Basically, you have a like an American Idol moment on the show. Right. Yeah, and I, that like kind of win over a, a jaded person, right. <laughs> like that's seen a million singers that day. Does that get all come down from like a network at some point of being like, uh, we we don't want to do this anymore, or they kind of having control over that saying we actually do want to see her do more of this or creatively no that, that was down, us or? that was really we were we were very aware of that that it's it's you know that that of finding different ways to do it and uh, and addressing that challenge yeah uh, because it's also that I think that's part of it is that the the music was the the, the sort of academic term for it is diegetic you know sure. when you uh, when everybody is singing in the context of the story and right. as opposed to breaking out in song is right. the way they do it in a musical and that's it's tough because there, there are a very limited number of, of places where people sing <laughs> yeah. basically like you know it, you, it's you, yeah you got a recording studio yeah. you got on stage where else do we do church you know yeah. it's like there's not a lot of yeah <laughs> right um and that that was and so that that was a little bit tricky and and you know, and and who knows? I mean, I I, I think about what might have been. I'm having actually a lot of fl- uh, smash flashbacks this week because there are smash smashbacks. Yeah, smashbacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I was I'm actually like I I just got together with Teresa yesterday. You uh-huh. know, we're still very close friends, and and uh, and there there are a few smash people working on my musical. Okay. That, and so it's very much like, oh yeah, this is such a part of my life. Yeah, and and, and it is interesting that uh, there is uh, some crossover between regular non-musical theater and musical theater but they are surprisingly separate worlds right um i mean yeah i was curious about about that i mean had you this the world of the sort of this broadway uh just just this whole you know we've got the sardis scenes and just this i mean was that were you at all did you have any foot in that had you ever like developed anything that was like looking towards broadway or anything or was that element just sort of 
uh, you had the same perspective as a viewer on it. Just like the big, the you know, you're like Eileen Rand yeah. and this this sort of big uh, old old school. It feels it feels very throwbacky to like um, I don't know an an age where it's almost like Smash exists. I don't know, I don't know exactly what I'm saying here, but it's like it it's existing in this like pre Hamilton world yeah. where yeah. like yeah. but everyone Hamilton sort world. of treats it like Broadway's just a little bigger in the world than it really is. Um, I don't know. Was was that a world that you were in at all, even like socially? Um, yeah, there's a lot of crossover. Everybody yeah. knows everybody. I mean, I think before that moment, I mean, one of the things that was like it was satisfying was when I would like run into some Broadway director or some person like that that had that at least would make the effort of pretending that they knew my sure. work. You know, it, 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 maybe they did. I don't know. But uh, that always was very flattering. So I was like, oh, I never assumed that any of these people would know it. And there is, I mean, I, I was the kind of playwright that would have the readings at the big institutional theaters. Sure. Would not necessarily get on the main stage. And it's maybe if I had plugged away for five or ten years, uh, like you know, and, and maybe I, I, it could still happen. But I, I, what was funny was that at the time that that had happened, you know, I, I was I was also like really pretentious and really. Uh, uh, kind of had always conceived myself of like, no, I want to do the downtown work. I want right. to do something like, you know, work with. You want to put your Bruno group. Mars show up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I and never, which is also I, I feel like maybe a little uh, naive of me too, because now I see like a lot of my friends from that downtown scene are the ones that are being done sure. on and off Broadway. Now, like, what, so. what were they doing while I was yeah. committing myself? Were they were they cheating on downtown with yeah. uh, Broadway producers? And I yeah, didn't know. yeah. Or the possibility of just changing Broadway that, that, you know, and I think that, you know, Hamilton is, is one of the shows that, and it's not the only one, but also like, you know, playwrights like, you know, Annie Baker, Lucas sure. Arthur, that, yeah. that are these kind of downtown experimental players that are changing the form in a lot of ways, right. getting this Broadway presence. And, but at the time I was like kind of a little bit jaded and cynical about it, sure. that, but I, I did know a lot of those people. There is a lot of crossover yeah. and there's uh there's also this narcissism of small differences thing where, you know, you're like, Oh, I'm not one of those players. And, and I, and I would be, you know, sometimes even now years later recognizing like, Oh, I was kind of invited into that club, but I kind of thought that I wasn't being, or <laughs> right. I didn't want it or <laughs> right. you whatever was going on. on I was sort of like, ah, I don't really belong here. Yeah. yeah. And then being on that show, I was like, oh, okay, I, I, you know, there is quite a bit more, more crossover, um, than one would think. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and it, and it kind of, it was nice. It was a nice first TV job too, because I really felt at home and I yeah. felt that, uh, you know, going from uh, that job where I, I was, I, I also felt like I was given a place at the table. I think that, that sure. I, I was, you know, for my first TV job, you know, there, there, Teresa was not a big fan of rooms. And so we okay. would have brief rooms. But really, uh, you know, the writers were working with her one on one. She had, uh, kind but of, she maybe as a first time showrunner didn't have that like set in in the groove, like, um, you know, she was still still more open to collaboration than some people who are running their fifth show who are like this is how i do it this oh no I, I actually think that Teresa, if you know she gets her fifth show which will i will still I, I think be she deserves, she would still do yeah. it that way i think that i think she came up under david milch and that's kind of how he works sure and, the, and so i think that and it was i mean it actually took me quite a long time uh to figure out how to be in a writer's room you right. know uh because and i think Teresa sort of never liked it and 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 there is something that's a little bit weird and counterintuitive because as a playwright, you're alone, like working in this really literary way, and then you're talking about your work with directors or dramaturgs or collaborators, and then you're in the rehearsal room, 
But by the time you kind of get into what would be the equivalent of a writer's room where you're collaborating in that way, you're not like pitching the idea for the first time. Right. You know, you're basing it on your, you have something to talk about. Right. It is, it does feel weird. Yeah. And and what I actually learned too is that like a lot of these writers in writer's rooms are really good at faking it that, that they've, (laughs) they've written it already and they're, and they're pitching that. Or pitching it like, they're like, oh, what if it were, yeah, uh, this thing that I wrote. (laughs) Or the opposite that they're, uh, you know they're they're just really good at selling a bad idea. Sure, you know, that's and there's of course everyone knows it's Hollywood. There's right. lots of people. <laughs> sure. um, and and so, but it was very good. It was a very easy first thing that I, I got to do a lot. I got to work a lot of independently um, and work a lot with Teresa. Yeah. Um, when you were the writers' room or the room, as it were, was in New York, and the show was shooting in New York. So that must have been a nice. I mean, as you didn't get your first job and just have to immediately pack up your life and move to LA, yeah, which yeah. I mean, I, I guess eventually did happen. You're, you're out there. Yeah. That now, happened like a year later. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Mad yeah. Men. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was great that it, it was fantastic to kind of feel, um, and also, you know, from the point of view of any of the executives or any of the, the department heads or people like that, they were they, they were not, like, attuned enough to the world of theater to look at these, like, you know, micro differences between, like, downtown and uptown. Right. Like, like they, they, I knew about New York theater, and I did. Right. Um, and, and that was kind of all that they cared about. Yeah. And... And it was great. Yeah, I could actually like ride a bike to the writers' room. And yeah, to the where did, where did the what where were the stages at? Uh, they were mostly in Greenpoint. There and, like uh, Broadway stages. No, or, it was, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's uh, it was it was pretty new. Like yeah, we were the first show there. And then there was stuff in Long Island City, not Silver Cup or Broadway, but um, I'm can't, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, um, a million different. Yeah. Not the script buildings. That yeah. no, one, no one would have idea any idea of big musical numbers happening in some, right. uh, Yeah. And that was the interesting thing I learned about stages in New York versus LA is that like in New York they're mostly like converted bagel factories or something. Yeah. So they're not quite the Silver right cups, size. They, uh, yeah. A bread factory. Yeah. 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 Uh, whereas yeah. in LA they've actually built them to be stages. Right. And I'm like, oh god, you have so much more space. Right. Like here, you know. Um <laughs> don't have to park under some overpass somewhere and Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. That uh, things are not quite as on top of each other. Um but yeah, so so that that was great. I mean, it was it was a really good. Um, but like I said, I mean, it was very similar to my story about the catering. It kind of spoiled me a little bit. I've, I've sure now since kind of seen more of the gamut of what television is and could right. be. And I'm like, okay, uh, you know, you don't expect Smash or Mad Men every time, right? Know? Yeah, right. Um, well, yeah. I mean, so I guess we should we should get start towards wrapping up. Yeah, but. Um, uh, I don't know what 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 have you got? Oh man, I mean you you've just covered so many things. I feel, like, I thing- feel like now we're in the just like what are those questions we really want? No, to I ask? know like all my things are all very silly, goofy little things. Of sure, just, yeah, like, yeah. Of just, go I, for mean, it. No, I mean it's just like I, I when I imagine the the writers room, I think of like a, a whiteboard with how many times Angelica Houston throws a drink in someone's face. Yeah. And just <laughs> like running like those, those kind of like running bits and gags and stuff are. Um, I guess like when I watch it now, I'm like, oh, I, I'm like watching people enjoying sort of leaning into this sort of like, um, you know, producer care. Yeah, the, yeah. the campiness. Yeah. I, I'm wondering kind of how much of that, um, just like what the process is like of, of those kind of things. Like, is there really like leaning in a lot or um, is it? Oh, yeah. I think that it was, I mean, every, we, we all wanted the show to be fun and funny. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, and I think that, that it was that to the extent that the, the show uh, was, pilloried uh it it was i think it was partially an effect of the marketing campaign um i I think that that's it was sort of i mean in a way i've learned it's funny because my 
uh, you know, my third TV job, uh, I, like two jobs after Smash, was also an NBC show, but it was completely the opposite. It was Hannibal, which NBC completely ignored because right. uh, it was uh, it was actually incredibly for as beautiful as that show looked, it was very cheap to make. Sure, and so they didn't, and it had a really like intense loyal following. Yeah, and it didn't cost NBC a lot of money, so they, you know, we kind of uh, were flying under the radar. Yeah, and it was it was like oh, sometimes it's really good to be the show that the network is ignoring. Right, that that um, you know, and nothing against anybody at, at, at NBC, but I think that it, it was, uh, you have this just intense spotlight on you and everyone's they're looking at these billboards and thinking about, and I think that's, that's the thing is that people that live in New York and go to Broadway and see the theater, like say, kind of see how goofy it is. It's sort of like, yeah. I feel like we have a very different um, idea of theater, very different expectations of theater than uh, maybe the British do in London or something. Like it's, it's more kind of, oh, oh, it's like to vaudeville and stand up and it, it's, sure. it's more, more of a popular art form. Right. And, so there may have been some way in which like the things that people were laughing at online, you were like, no, we, we wanted you to laugh at yeah, that. Like yeah, we, yeah. we were having fun writing this, this show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's, and I think that also the, the idea of, I, I think that, I, I honestly think that the idea of hate watching got com- kind of completely. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't. I don't know the, the 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 person that I've actually only spoken to about it was uh, you know Rachel Schuchert who wrote the recaps for Vulture, and I, I you know she told me she loved the show that it wasn't hate watching at all. It was, and that's part of I think that. It, in this world, this especially very kind of uh, very catty musical theater world, right? Like cynical. <laughs> yeah, people rip apart their own. Yeah, <laughs> people love to rip apart the things that yeah, they love. It's right. part of the the joy of it. Sure, uh, which is sometimes toxic and sometimes right. bad. And it's one of the things I don't miss about theater, but it's uh, but sometimes it's it's kind of it's not meant in the spirit. I, I I think that a lot of the people that were critical of Smash, I um, I don't think they wanted to see it go away. I don't I think I think that they were enjoying that was part of the pleasure right, of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's in the same way that people who complain about live staging some things right now I think would be very, very bummed to oh, hear like that they're the, gonna not do them anymore. Like yeah. the live you know, the whiz or the and all that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think people love to and I'm, I admittedly was one of those people the first time where I was like, oh, I'm just going to like tear this apart. And then I was like, why am I doing this? This is like the art form that I grew up in and yeah, love. And yeah. I'm, I'm like loving that my friends are working on TV. This is the most amazing thing. And so yeah. I think it comes from that, too. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that. And so I think that it, it's um, yeah. Uh, um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, I do think it's it is kind of unfortunate. I mean, I, I can't complain about kind of what happened to me after this match. <laughs> sure, I, mean, I think things turned out okay, but um, but I did have a good time on it. I would have really loved coming back for a second season and staying in yeah. New York, and and uh, you know, um, but like I said, I mean, I think that the you know the the like literally the reason why I have a second child is because I moved to L.A. and we had an extra room. So it's like, <laughs> right, you know, so I feel like okay, I'm not gonna you know like things yeah, right. everything turned out okay, but. Um, yeah, but I think that there was a lot of potential and the show was, was just a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So I will say on, on this question of things that people were hate watching about, uh, because he featured heavily into this episode, I do want to ask about the character of Ellis because this was, this was like the most controversial thing that I remember at the time was people's. And then I, so there's was much written about the show, but one thing I read online is that Steven Spielberg loved the character of Ellis uh-huh. and he was pushing that. Is there any, do you know anything about, I mean, I know you were a staff writer. You might not have been in those conversations. But. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that um, to my knowledge, I mean, I, I, I again, my uh, experiences with him were, were extremely limited. You yeah. know, it was not, um, I, I don't think I ever spoke to him directly once. So, but that's not something that I, I had ever heard. I think it's more um, 
that you know we had come up with this character of the of the kind of the crafty assistant who is yeah. ambitious and getting ahead and i think that you know it may have been just a casualty of like a moving too fast and b that mandate to put in the series regulars every time oh, i sure. think that you have to find something for me yeah it's a yeah d or I, yeah. e or f plot where yeah where you have maybe only 90 seconds of screen time in the episode but you feel like he has to be doing something meaty so it's like okay what's what's the meat that we can give him and it ends up being a little bit cheesy meat or <laughs> yeah sometimes yeah <laughs> that's, that's a sandwich that, yeah. yeah that's a sandwich <laughs> yeah and i feel like that's the, that's the trick is um you know if uh having to come up with a story for everybody in every episode but also i mean it's not the ellis show so i think you end up right. giving him something small and it's and it's and i think that there are certain characters on that show um and I, I think it was also um a little bit uh, the same thing happened with Angelica Houston. It's, you have Angelica Houston, you have to use Angelica yeah, Houston. Right. I mean, she's magnificent. But it's uh, the that, you know, that Broadway producer character probably could have benefited from being more of like a Burt Cooper figure that comes in <laughs> a lot less, but when they come on, they're riveting. It's, yeah, yeah powerhouse yeah, yeah. performance for that for that moment, but yeah. you don't have to find the run-of-the-mill Here's another scene in in the restaurant with her ex husband. Like, yeah, yeah, and all of that is just network versus cable. Sure, you know, it's just that you have to justify these paychecks, and, right? You know, and, and it's um, and I mean, those pressures to some degree exist in cable too. But I think there's a little bit more wiggle room about we're going to do this kind of story this week, or right. um, is, is that? Yeah, I think that that's um, because it it, it is also, uh, and I think that we. Um, part of it is that we, you know, you go into something being like, oh, I know what the story is. And then you kind of get a little bit further. You're like, oh, I thought I knew. And, and I think the idea is that, oh, yeah, like, you know, Ellis is an ambitious assistant. He's ruthless. He's not loyal to anybody. And he'll do whatever he has to to get ahead. And he's going to be a producer in two years. And right. That's, I guess, kind of a story everyone sort of knows. But And, and, and when you see people like that in the real world, it's yeah. not so far from, yeah. you know, people understand the, the, re, the real basis of that. That sort of that go getter who uh, ruffles people people's feathers yeah. because you, they're tra- too transparent in their uh, ambition. Yeah, and then sometimes it just in the in the broad brush strokes of network TV has to become stealing scripts and you know things that yeah that just push a little into yeah and i think a lot of that is and, and i think some of it may have had to do with like all the different moving parts of it too is right. that like it, it's like you want to be really specific about okay well he's an ambitious so what does he do to get ahead who does he please right what are his allies and there's so there's so much else going on in the story of the creation of the musical that it, it, you know you didn't want to start the story from ellis's point of view right. like okay it's not a story about you know which is um I mean, maybe a, a little bit all about Eve, but the all about Eve was the two women, right? You know? uh-huh. It's uh, but that story about like, you know, specifically what does he do? Um, so, so there was, a, you know, it, it did get kind of uh, complicated in that way. Um, but then, you know, then again, I mean, nothing is ever created under ideal circumstances, right? So. Sure, and that's that's part of the uh, the the magic of TV in a certain yeah. way is that it's like there's a we have we have to get this episode in by this day, and it's yeah. it's an incomplete art form in a way where it's like. You don't you don't get an unlimited timeline to keep workshopping yeah. it. It's just you you have to turn in what you have, and it sometimes creates sparks that are better than you would have made if if it had been years of workshopping. Yeah, yeah, and I do think that it's like that. Smash was, was subject to a kind of scrutiny that you don't if if it were you know a hospital procedural or like a legal procedural or something like that. I don't think that it would have been. That that these I don't think it would have gotten that kind of scrutiny. Right. Yeah. Um. I think people would, would it was it was it would be a little bit of a gimme because it was well, the show was TV. Yeah. Game. Or if if NBC hadn't been 
and NBC seemed to have really wanted it to be like the return to form. Like yeah. it, it, it was promoted as almost like network is prestige again yeah. in this way where yeah. if it had just been like, Hey, we're doing sort of like a cop show, but it's a musical theater show. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> it might've been uh, not, not had the same, the same reaction. I have one last theory. I want to say uh-huh. I brought this up last week. I think this is almost entirely certainly wrong, but I have to run it by you. If this was ever a conversation, was there a thought that, in the casting of Jack Davenport uh-huh. as Derek Wills and his interplay with Catherine McPhee, it would remind viewers of Simon Cowell. And that it was a way of being like, let's play into people know her from American uh-huh. Idol in 2012, 2011. That was still a pretty relevant thing, I think. Was it this thought of like, she, what people want to see is Catherine McPhee get yelled at by a posh British man? You know what? That actually sounds like I, 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 I could totally buy that happening. I mean, when he was cast, I was not part of that. that sure, that sure. And he's also like, I feel like that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure that wouldn't have been the only thing because he's this, you know magnificent oh, actor, sure. and the the and I feel like the 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 arrogant British theater director coming to Broadway is a, a real certainly. thing. Certainly, yeah. um, but I, I but I would not be at all surprised if that was. Part I just of the see a, I see an NBC executive who's yeah. just like, this is what they want. They want to see her be <laughs> harassed by a Brit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I bet that that may have been part of, or even the casting director sure. it that way, or or it could have happened totally unconsciously. Right. But I, I do think that that yeah, it that, just clicked with me while I was rewatching because I never thought about it while watching it before and I was yeah. just like this reminds me of of an American Idol yeah, <laughs> in yeah. Way that, um, yeah. Great. Do we have do I'm we like have sitting I'm, I'm sitting here just like wrapped I have, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm like forgetting that I'm supposed to be saying things and recording things um, well yeah thank you thank you so much oh sure yeah. can I plug my music oh, oh absolutely just in case this, uh, this goes up before April 28th which is when it closes um, it's 1,000 Nights in One Day. It's this uh, awesome composer, Marissa Michelson, and a really, uh, really, really fantastic cast. Uh, you know, people you know have these, like, uh, amazing, you know, musical theater and TV pedigrees, and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it. It's at uh, Prospect Theater, a theater with an R-E dot org. Um, and there's all kinds of, of, of tic- ticket offers, I think, if uh, there's a code O-T-N-E-B that gives you a heavy discount. Okay. Um, I might write yeah. that. I, yeah. I think I want to check this out. Yeah, I yeah. Well, I hope I got it right. O-T-N-E-B. If I, I, I don't want to give everybody the wrong acronym. Uh, but yeah, it's um, and it's running at the uh, Mezzanine Theater, Art New York's Mezzanine Theater, 53rd and 10th. Um, and uh, yeah, it's in previews now, um, and I'm pretty psyched about it. Um, I'm, you know, it's, it's uh, to date my only musical, so uh, it's very it's exciting. Pretty, Full circle from from bombshell to to one thousand nights in yeah. one day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my choreographer was a dancer on Smash. Oh no, oh, kidding! Great. Well, there you go. Um, great. I'm. I don't know anything else to plug your uh, Twitter. No, that's or, it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's our pleasure thanks for doing it. Until um, um, next time, we'll smash you later. later. <laughs> <laughs> To find more Smash Bros, go to smashbros.fun. That's S-M-A-S-H-B-R-O-S dot F-U-N. Or find us on iTunes where you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Smash Bros is produced in New York City by me, Marty Scanlon, and hosted by me and Jimmy Blackman. I'm on Twitter at Jimmy Blackman, and Marty is at MC Scan. If you know Brian Darcy James and think he would be down to do this podcast and maybe sing on it for us, what the hell are you doing? Tell him to email us at podcastsmashbros at gmail.com. We'll see you next week on The Great White Way. And now, Brian Darcy James. She said if I wouldn't take her serious, she knew somebody who would. Um, I'll do that. Please, I'll just come back.
He's like, I'm like living for this day in the back. He's instantly with him. And like the service is like, yeah. So the bits that he's singing with the telegram. It's a beautiful song. Yeah. It turns into an amazing duet. James is he just like he looks like he should just be like my dad. Yes. He, well, it's weird because he actually does look. He like looks my, kind of a lot like my dad too. He looks like a Scanlan. <laughs> it's so weird. He has the eyebrows and yeah. I was trying to find like the one person who's just like looking at their phone or something. It's for Stannis Baratheon in the back. <laughs> it's just 
like looking at someone. He really looks like Stannis Baratheon so much. Is that a game? Yeah. I don't watch games. You know the actor, though. I think I might even know. I think I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I forget his name. Stephen Delane. Okay.